0: Sneak up surreptitiously and grab some more food while I'm speaking. That's totally legit. If you Want to go get a refill on your coffee? Totally fine. One of the patterns that um, you see in the Gospels, and I read a book this week that oh, just a super helpful, fun, easy but challenging read uh, Tim Chester's A Meal with Jesus. I believe some of the women in uh, the church were reading this as part of a book study last year. And uh, Miriam Key said, you've got to read this before you get to your E of blessed because it's like everything that you're going to be talking about. And she was totally bang on. It's a great book. you You can get through it in about two hours. And it's really designed to show you, make you become aware of this pattern that we see in the Gospels, that as the Gospels unfold, Jesus is gaining a reputation in a lot of different ways. But one of the reputations that he gets comes from the fact that he's often sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners, which is kind of a first century catchphrase that is trying to hold together the most unworthy, unacceptable kinds of people. Obviously, first century Jews thought that everybody was a sinner, but, but sinners referred to people who were clearly and consistently Uh, living out a lifestyle of sin. So they weren't someone who was like, I'm a sinner, but I'm trying to seek God. They were people who were far from God. And tax collectors were seen as these people who, although they were Jewish, they were kind of in league with Rome. And Rome represented the the tangible expression of God's enemies. And so Jesus eating with tax collectors, i.e. the enemies of God, and sinners, people who are far from God, this gets Jesus into a lot of hot water in the Gospels. Just the fact that Jesus eats and breaks bread with these people is scandalous to the religious authorities. It makes them call into question what kind of leader he is, what kind of rabbi, whether or not you could consider him godly because look at the people he chooses to surround himself with specifically at mealtimes. One of the reputations that Jesus gains early on, and, and Tim Chester talks about this, it, it kind of, it's a little bit more in the forefront in the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus is derided. He's sneered at by the religious authorities for being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't just eat with them, but he's called their friend. He seems to be comfortable with them and interact with them in a way that leads other people to look at it and say, well, I might expect Jesus to be with them and then scold them and call them to repentance and then kind of draw a line in the sand. But he seems to be interacting with them in a way that would lead one to believe that he's friendly towards them. And the religious authorities don't know what to do with this. It makes them very uncomfortable. They're very comfortable eating and drinking. They're very comfortable having... Parties and taking part in the great feasts of the Old Testament, uh, as long as, Tim Chester says, the guest list is appropriate. As long as the right people are invited to the party, that's totally fine, you can party. But when tax collectors and sinners are getting an invite, that's when people start questioning whether or not we can legitimately look to Jesus as a spiritual authority. Eating and drinking, and specifically, Eating and drinking with those kinds of people earns Jesus a lot of scorn from the religious elites. In Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, this precedes three parables that Jesus teaches about the nature of how God responds to things that are lost. It says, The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. They were attracted by Jesus. No one was forcing them to come. They wanted more of what Jesus was offering in terms of his presence and his ministry and his teaching. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this is anxiety-producing for them. Because in the first century, maybe more so than for us, although it's very similar in our, our, our culture, who you choose to break bread with, who you choose to invite around your family table, who you choose to go out for a meal with, does communicate something to the broader world. And again, in the first century, meals were often used as boundary markers of who's in, who's out, who's established, who gets the invite into this kind of meal, and who is not allowed to because of either personal purity issues, or you're not religious enough, you're not observant enough as a Jew or as a Gentile. So when Jesus seems to be ignoring all the conventional boundary markers and really asking anyone to come as they are, this is very destabilizing to the religious authorities. Because maybe like some of us today, we have a picture in our mind of, this is what a proper good gathering would be amongst godly people, godly friends, uh, maybe within the church, what uh, we have in our mind's eye, this is an appropriate way to connect with people. And then there are certain kinds of gatherings or an eating and drinking and partying that we say, yeah, this is not appropriate. And usually we say, these are the kinds of people who lean towards the appropriate ones and who we would engage with on that level. And these are the kinds of people who go to those kinds of eating and drinking gatherings and then they, and kind of never the two shall meet. And Jesus kind of uh, breaks down those invisible, but very felt walls by eating and drinking with some of the most morally questionable people that you discover in the Gospels. And not only does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, but if you have eyes to see it, as you read through the Gospels, you'll realize he's inviting us to do the same thing. In John 20, Jesus is telling his disciples the methodology and the pattern of God's redemptive plan. And he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I've been sent on a mission. And now when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And as the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. It's kind of a pass it on mission. So this mission, my mission is now going to be your mission. I'm going to work through you. But this is your mission to continue forward in as the church. As the people who have surrendered to my lordship. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Which begs the question well, how was Jesus sent? Tim Chester, again, really astute observation. He says there's three times in the Gospels where we're told Jesus came and then the, the sentence gets finished. The first is Mark 10 where Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many, which is a statement of purpose. This is the reason why I've come. Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's another statement of purpose. The reason why I've come is to redeem those who are far from God. But the third one is the one that Tim Chester says we might kind of just skip over it and not feel the weight of it. Luke 7.32 The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And he says that is actually a statement of method. That's a statement of strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Tim Chester says that's how Jesus came. It wasn't why he came. He didn't come to eat and drink. But how did he move into his mission? What was his strategy? It was to eat and drink with people. And once you have eyes to see it, and you kind of reread the Gospels, it's kind of all over. Um, you know, one uh, Bible commentator said, you know, especially in the Gospel of Luke, but in a lot of the Gospels, um, what you the, the connections you begin to make is Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Meals become these; uh, they're kind of all over. Once they're kind of hidden in plain sight, and once we have eyes to see them, you realize, wow, meals were really important to Jesus. Eating and drinking were really important, so much so that Jesus gains this reputation for being someone who eats and drinks inappropriately. In Luke 7, there's kind of this um, pushback that Jesus gives, gives to the religious, religious authorities. He says, listen, what, uh, what then can I compare this present generation to? Uh, what are they like? And Jesus says, you guys, the religious authorities, are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played a f- flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you didn't cry. And he's kind of saying, you're, you're these people who you can't be satisfied. You, no, matter what we, no matter what happens, you won't kind of play along. You're, you're stubborn, you're hard-hearted. Uh, we played happy music and you refused to dance. So we thought, oh, you must be sad. So we played a funeral dirge but you, you won't cry, you won't participate in that. You're just kind of off on the sidelines, judging other people, but you're actually not participating at all. You're giving us nothing to work with. And, he said, and his example for this is he said, see, when John the Baptist came, and he came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, so he was very ascetic, he was very strict in terms of what he allowed in his body, and he and his disciples had this pattern of not eating and drinking, the religious authority said, oh, see, he's got a demon. He's, got a, he's demon-possessed. But when the Son of Man came eating and drinking, referring to himself, you guys say, oh, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, we can't win with you guys. You're just looking for a way to not participate in what God is doing. And this habit of eating and drinking seems to be something that Jesus was discipling his followers into, his core 12, the apostles, because one of the pushbacks that the religious leaders give Jesus is they said to him, you know, John's disciples, they often fast and pray. Like, we're pretty sure John's legit, because his disciples are really, like, focused on prayer, and they fast all the time. Um, And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Fasting, refraining from eating and drinking is part of their MO. But you, Jesus, your disciples, go on eating and drinking. The pattern that we're seeing with you and your disciples is, you're not fasting as much as we thought like a good godly leader would do. You have, a, you have a lot of long meals that stretch into the night, large gatherings, and gatherings with the wrong kind of people. So we're trying to figure out how you can rationalize that as someone who supposedly speaks for God. Because our assumption is someone who speaks for God and is godly wouldn't participate in this kind of eating and drinking And so we should ask ourselves, why does Jesus take the time consistently in the Gospels to eat and drink with people? Why is this a priority for Jesus? And it's because there's power in breaking bread together. There's power in breaking bread together. Meals communicate at least four things. And Tim Chester kind of has a chapter devoted to more than these, but these are kind of some of the salient ones that I want to put before us this morning because they really help us to see why this pattern of Jesus, I think, needs to become more and more a pattern in our own lives if we want to follow Jesus. See, Jesus understands that meals communicate acceptance and friendship. Even today, if you choose to invite someone over for dinner or out to lunch or even just out for a coffee or tea, and you're intending to sit down with them in an unhurried space and just listen and engage, that person is either likely a friend or someone who you are intending to become your friend as a result of maybe many of these conversations. There's kind of a momentum that you're desiring to get to know this person in order to move into deeper friendship. Few acts are more expressive of friendship than a shared meal. And the word companion comes from the two Latin words together and bread. Com, panen, together, bread. So when we break bread, every time we do it, we're signaling to the other person, even on an unconscious level, I accept you, I'm glad you're here, it's good to be here, let's build friendship. When I was in high school, and I think it was either grade 11 or 12, I think it was grade 12, and my friend and I had been Christians for three or four years, and I don't know how we came up with this idea. It wasn't really an idea, actually. I don't know how we moved into the, There was a little s- sparks of maturity that emerged at that age, and this was one of them that I'm very, very glad the Holy Spirit put on my friend and I's heart. Uh, my friend who's now in Ottawa is being trained within the Anglican Church to go into uh, be a priest. And I think he's going to be done in like 2022, so he's taking the long road. Um, but we talked. To, I was talking to him this week, and one of the things that we did is we would, there was this long hallway, and we just had our own lunches. Some of the students went down to the cafeteria. Some would go across the street. There was a big mall, and they would just get food. We would almost always sit at the end of our hallway. The hallway was quite large. We were in about a 2,000-person high school, and at the end, in the whole hallway, there was maybe eight to 12 people having lunch just in front of their lockers. We were at the very end, our lockers were at the end, and we just sat there and we ate lunch. And I can't remember how it happened, but early on in the year, there was a girl named Sarah who started having lunch with us. And what made, uh, what made it feel sort of awkward for us at the start was Sarah was definitely one of those kids who, we didn't have the language for it, but now we would say she was just really socially awkward. I don't remember her hanging out with other people. She was a grade lower than us. She was really nice, but definitely not like a dynamic personality within the school. Probably someone who kind of goes to school, exists in the school, and leaves school, and is more or less invisible. And I I don't know if she was just down the hallway a little bit. I can't remember where her locker was, but she just started hanging out with us and talking with us just about random stuff. And we would listen, and we would talk about our random stuff and talk about youth group and stuff, and we invited her. And she never came to youth group, and this happened almost a whole year. I'd say three or four days of the week, Sarah would eat with us. And I remember talking with my friend, and we realized, I don't think Sarah has many friends. And we as Christians should signal to her that we can be her friend, and that we were willing to be her friends. And we really were. We listened to her. Um, we played board games together some, lunchtimes. And I don't know what happened to Sarah. I don't know where she is in life now. We kind of lost touch with her. But I looked back and I thought, you know, even then, God was putting on our hearts the importance of meals as a way, breaking bread, even if it's just lunchtime over high school, meals as a way of signaling acceptance, and I'm pretty confident I could speak for Sarah in saying those, those lunchtime meals were uh, probably a bit of a safe haven for her. To know that at lunchtime she could have at least two people in the school who weren't going to make fun of her or not ignore her at least and just allow her to share and treat her like a normal person and joke and talk, that would have, I'm sure, meant a lot to her, just like it would have meant a lot to me if I would have just been alone in a hallway eating my lunch most days by myself. Meals communicate acceptance and friendship like few other things do. Meals also communicate grace. Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus is really brilliant in terms of how he uses meals because he wants meals and the miracles involving food to be a tangible sign of God's grace. See, we can talk about God's grace, right? In a way that's theoretical and kind of try and wrap our imaginations around it. But when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're starving and you're like, wow, we're far from anywhere where we can get food and Jesus provides a meal where maybe 12 to 15,000 people can eat and then there's leftovers, everyone's having their fill. That's a different kind of embodiment of God loves you, right? God loves you, those words out in the desert when you're hungry, they mean something. They mean something more when your belly is full and when you've had a chance to break bread with people. God loves you. And so God, Jesus' meals with people become this, what Tim Chester calls, an enacted pattern of grace. It's kind of graced with skin on it. It's made real to us, right? When we're eating food, we're literally consuming life. The thing that gives us life And we're saying, yes, this is good and we're being fulfilled. And that creates a context where God's love and grace can kind of come home and settle in our hearts in a way that just talking about it in the abstract never seemed, to can't, uh, never seemed to connect in the same way. And meals in this context of grace and community become powerful because our culture is moving more and more towards individualism and autonomy and self-sufficiency. Even something as simple as the family dinnertime meal is something which has been slowly worn away over the last two or three decades. And I think there's consequences that come with that. In simply just using food as fuel, I'm on the run, I'm shoveling things into my body so that I can execute the next thing on my list. That's different than seeing food as an opportunity to stop and to be with someone and to listen with care and to share memories and laughter, even if it is for only 10 or 15 minutes. The one quote that I like from the book said this, Our shared meals offer a moment of grace, a sign of something different, a pointer to God's coming world. Life in the kingdom demands that we adopt a new set of table manners. As we observe this etiquette, we become increasingly civilized according to the codes of the city of God. Around the table, we offer friendship and we celebrate life. And I love this line. Our meals offer a divine moment. Our meals offer an opportunity for people to be seduced by grace into a better life, a truer life, a more human experience. And if you've had a good meal with people where the trust is high and your guard is down and there's good food and it's unhurried, that idea will resonate with you. You will have experienced it. And Jesus understood that those were the kinds of contexts that powerfully softened and opened people's hearts to influence and to love and to hear the gospel. Meals communicate vulnerability. Eating is, is actually a really intimate act. It's a very vulnerable act because just by eating in the presence of someone, you're, communica- you're expressing that you are dependent on something else. Right? I can get up here and talk and sound impressive and quote Bible verses and do all these things, and I might, depend, you know, especially if you don't know me very well, you could show up to church and leave and have this impression of maybe Jeff is a larger-than-life figure, really confident, must know all these things, kind of a a certain kind of a tier of a Christian. You could fill in all these false blanks of who I am, right? If we break bread together and you see how desperately dependent I am on, on something like food, right? You're like, oh, this guy's just like a guy. He's just a normal person. He has gifts over here, but he can't eat without making a huge mess over himself and the table. like He's totally just a normal person. And that's why it's important to break bread together because it's kind of a way that we can voluntarily offer vulnerability to other people. And it makes them comfortable. It it takes this idea that... um, See, in the ancient world, what you had is you had hierarchies of society and the elites ate together or if elites and non-elites ate together, let's say in a household, your table was structured, so the man, the, the pater familia, often the grandfather, is at the head of the table, and down the table is not just people, but successive rows of the powerless, ending with women and slaves. They eat the food last, and their place at the table reveals that they are very much second-hand or third-hand citizens within the pecking order. And when Jesus eats his meals, he kind of turns this hierarchy of the greatest and the least, and he just kind of turns it on its side. And everyone eats together. Which is destabilizing for everyone. It's destabilizing for the people who are like, I'm just a nobody. I'm just a slave. I shouldn't be sitting beside uh, one of the heads of the household. Or when the early church gathered and they were having a communion meal together, because it was a meal in people's homes. It wasn't just little pieces of bread and grape juice. You had a slave who was sitting beside a free man who was maybe sitting beside a noble, all of whom had given their lives over to Jesus, but now they all had equal access to the same table and they were eating together and having conversations and working out, wow, what does it mean for us to be Christian brothers and sisters? But food and this meal that Jesus gave them was this incubator of a new way of understanding who they were and an incubator of God's grace in their lives because it communicated vulnerability. Vulnerability the old hierarchies of greater and lesser were kind of obliterated. And you put all these things together and they get to the fourth element of what meals do, and that is they communicate unity. We eat with those we desire to be unified with. We eat with those we are hoping we can find some common ground with. I mean, think about how Think about what it would communicate if I went home tonight and told one of my children they were not welcome to eat at our table. They can eat, but they eat in that corner. I'll still feed them. I'll still nourish their body. But the rest of the family is over here. There's not a more isolating, condemning, demeaning, dismissive, shaming act uh, I might argue you could ever do in, in kind of that social context. See, by having everyone at the table, even when there's issues, even when there's awkward silences, even when there's elephants right in the room that no one wants to address, but we're going to slowly try and work through it, we are communicating that we're willing to sit down together. And this is why it's never... Well, I shouldn't say it's, it's never happened. I've done it a few times personally. But when there's been a real rupture in my life with maybe someone in a church setting or in a family setting or whatever, I don't... I, I, I try and get people around a table. Coffee is okay, but a lunch or dinner in a quiet place or at home is better. Because I want to send the signal, I, this isn't adversarial. I'm not trying to win. I want to be unified. And meals become a way of communicating that to people. Again, sometimes at a very unconscious level. And so I say all these things to challenge myself, because this is an area that I need to be challenged in. And they challenge us to see meals as a kind of ministry. And not just a kind of ministry or a little cute little hospitality thing, but is central to how we move into the mission of God. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. There was a big agenda of redemption on Jesus' plate, so to speak. But how did he enact it? Often by eating and drinking, by drawing people close, by inviting them. A quote from the book says this, it's very easy to make community and mission sound like specialized activities that belong to the experts. And some people have a vested interest in doing this because it makes them feel extraordinary. Or we focus on dynamic personalities who can hold an audience and and lead a, a movement. Some push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians, but the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And so mission isn't complicated. It's not always easy because it involves people invading your space, or are you going to spaces or places that aren't always comfortable, but it's not complicated? If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up the Christian community and reaching out in mission. So my challenge first to myself and then to us is to eat together. And, not, and, and it's fine to do the church potluck thing and to this thing, that's fine. But it is ideal to invite people into our homes. That is the ideal, where they can see that we are imperfect and they, we can listen with care and really get to know our neighbors. And specifically, I'm thinking of non-Christians. Now, it's important to invite Christian friends, people in our church and the broader Christian community into our, into our homes. Through meals, we can sit down, we can nourish a brother or sister who's maybe going through a hard time, listen to them, get to know them, just to get to know their story. That's been a huge encouragement for me as many of you have invited me into your home and my family. But also with non-Christians. A lot of people find evangelism a big word, an overwhelming word. I want these family members or friends to become Christians. I don't know what to do. Remember best. Begin with prayer. Why don't you invite people over and listen with care. Just get to know them. Tell me your story. Through meals you can sit down and you can nourish a friend who's not a Christian and you can demonstrate God's love through listening. And that is not a little act. That will be received as something very, very powerful. Now again, we can think, that's awkward, I don't know, what am I going to say? What if they come over and the conversation is just like a dud? Uh, It's risky, but again, begin with prayer and set your heart to listen. And just have a bunch of questions and just listen. Don't worry about sharing your story, just listen to them. Get to know them a little bit more. Tim Chester tells a story where he was being attentive. Him and his wife had relationships uh, with people in their church and there was one non-Christian friend who wasn't going to their church and she was engaged to be married. Her fiance broke off the engagement. They te- she texted Tim and his wife and they were like, oh, that's brutal news. Why don't you come over tonight? We're just having some people over. We're just having curry and watching the UK equivalent of American Idol. And she came over and there was no major ministry that happened that night. They ate. It was a distraction for her. She watched a show. She went home. The next day, she texted Tim and said, last night, your house was a place of refuge for me. And then I think Tim said, uh, two months later, him and his wife started reading the Bible with her. And a few months after that, she became a Christian. And a lot of his book is telling these stories of people who heard stuff about the love of God, heard stuff about Jesus Kind of out there in the ether. Maybe they've read stuff online. They remember stuff back in their memory from church, maybe as a child. But it was when a Christian just invited them over for dinner or lunch and broke bread with them and didn't have an agenda other than getting to know them, love them, and serve them a good meal and just create a space for unity and for some expression of friendship to form. That was the seeds that God used to do something awesome. And so meals bring mission into the ordinary. Meals make something, make, leave us all without excuse. Tim Chester says, if you eat three times a day, you have 21 opportunities a week for mission. Just take one or two of them. Maybe even one a month. To say one meal a month. I'm going to intentionally invite a non-Christian friend or family member over, without adding anything to your schedule. Jesus didn't run projects. He didn't establish ministries. He didn't create programs or put on big events. His preferred strategy was to eat meals in people's homes. And if you routinely share meals and have a passion for Jesus, then you will be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. Only Jesus, through the gospel message, can do that. People are saved by Jesus. But meals will create natural opportunities to share the message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying. That God loves you, he is for you, he's provided a way, and Jesus is the bread of life that can nourish the deepest hunger of your soul, even as you're being filled with good food. Apart from any church programs, any interesting ideas, any outreach strategies, what would happen if over the next year as a community, let's say each family, each individual, each couple said, one meal a month, we're going to invite a non-Christian friend over and just to get to know them. And let's just for the sake of numbers say there's you know, 100 people there, that's 1,000 meals over a year. Just one a month. But 1,000 meals, what would happen if 1,000 meals from within our community, we took the risk and just invited people over? I'm very confident there'd be a greater fruitfulness from that than some kind of cutting-edge evangelism program that I or the ECC or different. And that's why the ECC says, just go with Bless. Just, go, just eat together. God uses meals in our homes, our hospitality. And so let's take up that challenge. Let's look for ways to open up our homes to, yes, Christian brothers and sisters, for sure, that's a huge area of ministry that we can all participate in. But let's also see how meals with people can be a huge avenue through which to, in a non-threatening and powerful way, reach out with God's love to our non-Christian neighbors. Let's pray. God, we've eaten together as a community, and as we have, may we be reminded of the meal that you gave us. And that every time we break bread, every time we drink, we're reminded that, You gave yourself broken body, blood poured out so that we could know you. We could be accepted. And God, help us to have the courage to pass along that pattern, to eat and drink with friends. And God, as imperfect as we are and as all the different ways that we're scared to do that or take those risks, would you honor our fledgling efforts? Help us to be a people who eat together. And invite those to the table that maybe aren't being invited to other tables or don't believe they they have a place at the table. May our tables and our homes, God, become places of refuge for people. And may they become places of real mission and ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.